Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Nancy Duarte is a communications expert who has been featured in Fortune, Forbes, Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Her design firm, Duarte Incorporated, is the largest design firm in the Silicon Valley as well as the fifth largest female employer in the area. Her company specializes in creating slide presentations for corporations and high-profile individuals, such as Al Gore for the documentary slideshow and Inconvenient Truth. Nancy is the author of three books, and her latest book is the Harvard Business Review's Guide to Persuasive Presentations. So you ask, how does a girl from Chico, California, and a difficult childhood build an incredible career and life for herself? I wonder that too. Today, Nancy's here to tell us how she really did it and created what was possible for her despite a difficult beginning and evidence that could have stopped her. Nancy, hello and welcome to my show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, you know, a lot of people will know you as Nancy Duarte. You've done these TEDx talk. You're the author of Resonate, you know, and, um, but I want to talk about the woman behind the company and how you were able to develop and build this career that you have now. So would you mind sharing just um, real briefly, you know, because uh, many people believe like once you've been successful, so you must have always been successful, you have the golden spoon, but real, real briefly, your story on how you built this company. Yeah. So yeah, I was not born with a golden, silver, or even a brass spoon in my mouth by any means. Um, yeah. So I, I, I was, you know, raised in Chico um, in a home um, that was um, economically and emotionally starved, really. And I think that when you have the kind of space that I came from, that it made me committed to create a different kind of space. So um, what kind of pushed me into making this business what it is, is that I wanted to create very safe places, very expressive places, very communicative places and spaces for people to invent and to create and to do their best work. So um you know, when you're raised in the environment I was raised in with the, you know, the abuse, the the neglect, uh, the mental illness and alcoholism, it's like a cocktail for um, the child to either grow up knowing they don't want to be that or they get sucked in and become a victim themselves. And I don't know why, you know, what kind of you know, hot spa I had that made it so that I wanted to, you know, um, I knew what I didn't want and I want to qu- went on a quest, you know, to find what I did want. And so, um, what's interesting is I do, I do solidly believe in the American dream. None of it was handed to me. You know, I didn't have this plan. I didn't have money in the bank to go to college. I didn't have any of that. I had you know, we were talking earlier, I had grit, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't have uh, life's 
you know, path laid out for me in golden stepping stones at all. And I think that the beauty is actually in the struggle. The beauty is actually in the transformation where the unexpected one, you know, finds the grit and determination to um, make a difference. And uh, it makes it a better story than, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, parents were wealthy, they put her through Stanford, gave her, you know, three jobs at a nonprofit, flew her around the world. You know, it's just a different, it's just different. You would expect someone like that to change the world, whereas you would not expect someone like me to do that. Well, so when you were growing up in this household, right, because so often people say, well, I mean, one of my stories I used to have was I'm a, I'm a loser who grew up on loser street. But what gave you that idea, that hope that you could, you know, leave that um, emotionally starved and economically starved um, place for something better? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because you're, you don't, I didn't anyway sit as a child and dream about this different future. Um, I think a lot and reflect a lot about how I escaped as a child. And I would do things like, I remember I found an old beat up desk. And instead of playing, you know, I had my share of playing with some dolls, but I set up this desk in my room and I would trace coloring books and then file them alphabetically. You know, I just, I did all these little visual and I had this pack board that I found and I would tape things that you would lift little things and there'd be secret things behind them and secret wishes and those kinds of things. Like you go back and you look at how you play and a lot of times your destiny is hardwired in there somewhere if you find a memory to cling to. And I, I do feel like I've always been one of kind of determination or people tell me, you know, as young as 18 or 19 that I have this sense of personal authority that's rare. <laughs> I think that was really a way for them to tell me I had problems, <laughs> but I always took it as a compliment. I remember my first real job. I was um, an inside salesperson for a manufacturing company up in Chico, one of the only high-tech companies up there. And I, uh, the sales office was in the back and you had to walk across the manufacturing floor to the executive suite, which was in the front. And I had to march back and forth, you know, a few times a day, you know, with messages or paperwork and all that. And I remember a couple of people on the show floor, on the manufacturing floor, sorry, were like, we can always tell when it's Nancy just based on the sound I make with my feet. <laughs> and so I think I, I think I've just always, and it was a determined sound. I, I just, it's just the way I just walk is the same way I walk through life. I, I stop. I don't, you know, I don't do little ballet moves through life. I, I march through it. And so I think that, um, I knew what I didn't want and I knew I wanted to make a better life for myself and my children. I got married when I was only 18 and dropped out of high school because I wanted love. I wanted someone to love me. I wanted to feel loved. And I was so blessed to marry somebody who became my true love and the man of my dreams. Cause that's a recipe for disaster. 18 years old, marry the first man who would ask you. you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think even the grit has shown in our marriage as we just have worked through stuff and, found bliss and kind of cling to that. So I think that hardship makes you a victim or a victor. And I just made a choice. You know, we get to choose whether we have fear or choose hope. Those aren't things that you, those are choices. It's not like, Oh my God, I'm scared. It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to be hopeful about this thing. And, 
And I think making those choices makes you who you are. Um, because you do control your own future with your mindsets, your emotions, and the choices you make. And uh, anybody can rise above the fog and and uh, be different at any moment in your life. So, so when you were young and you were 18 and dropping out of high school and you were choosing hope, was it because the hunger for that love and that sense of belonging and connection just wiped away the fear? I think so. I, I think, you know, having someone who loves you truly and deeply, you know, I have a sense of hope in God. I feel like I have a friendship with an, you know, with a higher power that I cling on every day. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there, it, you know, I was married. My husband worked at nights for a cleaning company and I had no job. I mean, I was three weeks into our marriage with no job and I went around everywhere and this is 1981. So the economy wasn't strong. I went everywhere, putting my resume in everywhere. And then I went back and physically followed up on it. And I remember I went back to Long's Drugs because I really wanted to be a cashier. I wanted to be a retail (laughs) clerk. And I went back and somehow figured out, I didn't even know how the backs of these stores worked, but I found a door and I just walked in. And then I went up some stairs and I stood there at the facing this guy at a great big desk. And I said, I, I applied for a job and I really, really want to work here. And he's like, well, we don't have an opening. We just filled in all the tra- train. We already have training going on right here. And he points to the room attached. And I literally laid across his desk and said, I will be the best employee you've ever had. I really wanted a job here. He goes, okay, fine. You're hired. Go into training right now. <laughs> well, where does that come from? Like I needed a job. I needed a job and I wasn't going to let the wind just blow me anywhere. I needed a job. So I think, I think you just come up with the tenacity from somewhere. Some, some do and others let life pass you by instead of you controlling your own destiny. So I wonder if, cause you said earlier as a child, you escaped, right? And you mm-hmm. escaped into your room with the old beat up desk and so yeah. I wonder if that, you know, that, that childhood, that upbringing was some of the things that gave you resilience to go, okay, this is hard, but I'm going to find that strength in with me to cope, to, 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 yeah. to create something that I can enjoy. Yeah, I had lots of little escape mechanisms. If the, if the inside of the house got too violent, I would run out the front door and about a block away was my elementary school and I would just run and run and run the circumference of the school until I just collapsed and exhaustion. And then I ran cross country in high school and it was like a meditation for me. It became a place where I would process things or I would hop on my bike and up Honey Honey Run Road up there, you know, I would hop on my bike and my friend lived way up there 20 miles out and I would just get up there and just go and just, and I still do that today. I hike, I just go, I just go up to a mountain. I climb the mountain and about, I don't know, about an hour and a half in, but my brain is just processing, 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 fixing, figuring things out. I'm kind of a systems thinker. I, I process things going at work. I process things going on my house. Da, da, da. And then about an hour and a half in, I've processed everything. And then my mind just gets quiet. It just finally gets quiet and silent and, and all the voices stop, you know. And that's been what's become my coping mechanism are these longer endurance, like, you know, three hour long stint until I can actually embrace the quiet. And it's taken a long time, you know, to find those mechanisms. 
You mean when you say three hour long stints, is that the three hours of hiking to process the stuff? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I go on long bike rides, you know, two, three hour bike rides, two, three hour hikes. Just I I I have to get to the bottom of everything my brain wanted to solve so that my brain turns off and my heart can speak to God. You know, it's like I have to get into this state of emptiness where uh, I don't use my mind. I, I, I start to think from my heart. And the answers are different when you think from your heart than when you think from your brain. It comes from a more empathetic place. And most of the more counterintuitive moves I've made personally and professionally have come from this counterintuitive place in my heart when I let my brain quiet down and I let my heart speak to me. Oh, that's beautiful. So when you go on these three-hour hikes, I can imagine that you're a busy person and it's probably hard to find those three hours to go and do this, but you make it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm an early riser, so I leave the house by 6. I'm home by 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I usually do them Saturday and Sunday if I can. Um, but, you know, you make time. Like, people are like, oh, well, how, you're an author. Because I'm CEO of a 120-person firm. Mm-hmm. I travel around the world and speak, and I write books. That's So I get up at 6 a.m. to noon, and I write. So my calendar when I'm in a writing season is blocked. Um, from 6 a.m. to noon. So how in the world you got on my calendar before noon? I don't know. <laughs> you must have been tenacious. But n- normally, like I literally, so my day didn't really start um, until this call. My, but I get to sit in my room and be a little mad scientist and just think and dream about the future and where the future is going to be and the role my firm plays in it. And I think setting aside that time as sacred, as untouchable, um, is what gives me the space to invent. And every CEO should be an inventor and spend part of their doing that day doing that. And when I come up with a new book, it actually drives business to my company. So all my activities are for the benefit of the company. Um, it's a, just a matter of being really, really, really disciplined. So I have friends that try to get time on my calendar. They're like, they're like, okay, I called you in June and I get a, a 30 minute slot in November. <laughs> like, yeah, because my, you know, and then they realize, oh, it's because your morning, you know, I, I could see them twice as fast, but I, I do not let my mornings get cut into. So it does take discipline and tenacity uh, to do that for sure. Well, I appreciate getting an hour on your slot today. Because <laughs> I do realize. Yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> I have my ways. Um, so, and I think that's an important thing for the listeners out there because, you know, everybody can have an excuse of why we can't do something. And, but knowing that there are certain things that really help us, some people may say, well, how does hiking really help? You know, you run a company, but you've explained it. It helps you work through the process that's going on in your brain so that you can actually get to what's going on in your heart. And that's been really, and you have evidence in your business of how that's been critical. Yeah, it has been critical. I think I get, I get these, I, I get ideas too. So once I work through stuff and, and clear my head, um, then I get, um, I get ideas. I get, mm-hmm. I get ideas. Yeah. Okay. Um, so have I, I'm just trying to find out more where this confidence came from. It was it because your back was up against the wall and this is like, this is the journey that I'm on. And so I have a choice. I can either crumble or I can find a better way. 
Is that how you spoke to yourself? Yeah, I I do think inherently I'm a problem solver. I am a systems thinker. So I maybe look at the whole and not the part that was the part of pain. I I also now, I think on the other side of it all, realize that um, when you're willing to share openly and transparently the pain, which a lot of professionals won't or don't, that it helps people. It, people are actually like... Like I've just talked my regular talk, not even gone deeply into, you know, I just mentioned a couple of the hardships and people will come up to me crying after saying, I'm, I'm free. I have hope because you shared that. And, and I think those little encouragements, um, those little encouragements helped me. And I, I mean, really young, uh, I moved from California to Mississippi for four years. I finished high school in a year of college. The one year I got, I got in Mississippi, and I feel like um, that change, shifting schools, forcing me to make all new friends, I realized that 10th grade, uh, that, that year I entered 10th grade, the summer between 9th and 10th, I thought, I had like an identity when I was in Chico. I get to start over. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows where I've been. Nobody knows where I've come from. And I don't know why I made the decision to do it, but I thought, I want to make a decision. My, you know, I journaled it that this is how I wanted people to perceive me, and this is who I want them to think I am. And so I, I had kind of like a restart, which is interesting. A lot of people would be traumatized by a major transition in high school like that, but I just thought I want to walk down these halls and have people perceive me differently. And interesting, I did travel and speak uh, to youth groups when I was 16 um, back there in Mississippi, and I think I realized pretty quickly that that. Um, the stuff I went through could be used for good. And so I think that sense um, made me keep going. And it also kind of driven what I perceive success to be. Like it used to be, I used to say success for me would be, you know, running a home and a business and a family that's not like what I had. That would be success. And then it came to, well, success would be, if my mom called and said she was proud of me, then I would be like, oh, I'm successful. But then, you know, I was at home for about 17, 17 years, uh, well, 18 years. My mom left when I was 16, but I was home for 18 years. And then when I was married for 18 years, I realized, because it was equal amounts, <laughs> I may not ever hear my mom say she's proud of me. So I need to let something else drive my success. That's not that. And that was when I realized that I would actually find success when I made other people successful. And that's when I started to write the books. I started to realize I need to give and not receive. I, you know, and so I, I, life's a journey. I think people look at it and go like, how, how did you find that determination? How, you know, how did you, and my husband and I have this saying that we've just lived our whole life and it's, I want to wake up every day and do what brings me peace and what gives me passion and do just those things. So even though it looks like I went from here to here and was determined and knew what I wanted to do, it wasn't like that at all. I'd wake up and say, what, what, what makes me feel the most peace? How do I make those decisions that bring me peace and passion? So it's really been like one day, built on one day, built on one day, doing what I think we did, which was make really good, solid, sound, selfless decisions. Um, and, and it's just built from there. Well, and it sounds like 
there were small steps, right? It wasn't, you weren't this 18 year old saying, Hey, I'm going to be the CEO and the fifth largest employer in the Silicon Valley, right? Working with a future vice president. Um, what you did was say, I really want to be a cashier at long drugs. Drugs. Right. And then get this, a guy comes through my line at long's drugs named Pete and he's like, I'm only like four months in. I'd already petitioned to be promoted to pharmacy, <laughs> doggone it. And um, a guy comes through my line, and he goes, he was a family friend, so I recognized his name. He saw my name tag, said Duarte, and uh, Mark's mom, Mark's dad was a pretty reputable school teacher there. They even named the building after him. He was a music teacher. And he goes, you seem too smart uh, to be in this job. I run a small typewriter and office supply and typewriter repair store. Would you want to come and work with me? Bam, quit, you know? And I went to work for this guy who handed me his company, let me run it. And I'm like 19. Mm-hmm. So by then I might've been 20, but I, I just thought, yeah, I might've been, no, I'm still 19. So he made me, he made me do the ta- sales tax returns. He made me do the payroll returns. He made me do payroll. He made me do purchasing. He made me dust the shelves. He made me vacuum. And then he kicked me out the front door to make me do sales. Best thing that happened, I quintupled his business in the, in the two years I was there. And so I could, I, and I did not know it at the time, but that's how he demystified entrepreneurship for me. I, I, it's like I got an MBA working for this guy who just kept kicking me out and kicking me out. And, well, we'll just figure it out. Here's a programmable calculator. That's what we used back then. We didn't have computers. You know, here's good service. And he, he you know, I quit because I was pissed because all he did is sit in the back of the room and visit with friends all day. Now I realize he, he charged a child with running his business was the best thing he could have done for me. And he knew that. He saw that in me. And he let me run it however I wanted. And that was amazing. So then from there, I used to call on the only high-tech company in Chico as a client. And um, I asked him, is there any way I could get a job here? And so and they hired me. I, I was making 1025 a month working for Pete. I took this job for $975 a month. Uh, I took a pay cut. I mean, we were already eating a lot of potatoes and, and pinto beans, um, but I took an $80 pay cut or however much that math is uh, to take a job at a company that I thought would even be a better future. So it's not without sacrifice. I couldn't have money be my quest or I would have stayed with Pete because I was making 1025 <laughs> a month. Um, so, yeah, you, and then if I had not, if I had not had that job, I don't know that I would have been comfortable moving down to the Silicon Valley in a sales position. So, so yeah, they're baby steps, mm-hmm. real baby steps. And so whatever happened to your education? Cause you said you dropped out of high school. So whatever That's a great question, what happened was I went to a year of college and my brother was the star in the communications department. Literally, literally the star you could walk by. There's a billboard with a star painted, cut it out of <laughs> craft paper in his face in the middle of the star. He was like their, their star student. So I had taken speech communications in the comms department and I made a C minus, um, which is weird because now, and I made a D in English, which is weird. Now I write books in English about speech communications, but what was interesting, yeah, is I made an A in um, the visual display of information. Like I had the best props. I had great posters, you know, the visual part. But I got an F 
in connecting to my audience. And that failure of being able to connect the right content to the right people, out of that failure came my greatest work so far, which is Resonate, which is all about how to empathetically connect to an audience. Um, So I only got that year. Then I had my illustrious career, Long's Drugs, moving forward. (laughs) And when you you know, march like I do into the Silicon Valley, all confident. At 29, I'm walking into offices of CEOs and telling them what to say. Well, how did I go from long drugs to walking into offices telling people what to say? I was a student. I read every strategy book. We had no money, and I subscribed to Harvard Business Reviews magazine. We, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal. I read every business book. I looked at every trend. This is before the internet. You know, uh-huh. I was on top of it. I knew, I knew what was going on, and I could walk in and just tell a CEO confidently at 29 years old with only a high school degree. They never asked. Not one of my clients asked. They all assumed I had my MBA. Never asked. And so um, I went from there um, to having a bit of a hole in my soul in the sense that I'm posing. They can tell I'm posing. Oh, my God, I'm walking in and acting like I know this, but I'm a fake. You know, that sense because I didn't have my MBA. And the Silicon Valley is built on the backs of people that have either their engineering or their, or their you know, business degrees. And so... Believe it or not, Cisco has been my client forever, and they had a protege program where they um, picked um, diverse suppliers. As a female business owner, I'm considered a diverse, I'm disadvantaged (laughs) because I'm a female. And they um, offered to put me through UCLA's MBA program. So UCLA generously considered my 20-some years in business and my success and my platform as my undergrad, and they let me go straight and get an MBA. And Cisco... (laughs) Cisco paid for a chunk of it. So now I'm like, heck yeah, I can tell you what to say. (laughs) I don't have that other voice saying you're not qualified, you're not capable, you know, you you, you are a poser. All those voices stopped because someone believed in me, you know, so... So, yeah, that's my jaunt through education. (laughs) When did you get that? So you were 20 years in business. So mm-hmm. prior to that, you were still building Duarte Incorporated, were you not? Prior to getting yeah. your MBA? So even though oh, you yeah, still yeah. had those voices, because the listeners here can resonate with this, right? Yeah. They have those yeah. voices. You're a fraud. You're a fraud. Even with the degrees, they'll say, I'm a fraud. What do I really know? Right? Yeah. So yeah. how yeah. did you, even though you had that voice in the back of your head of I'm a fraud, still walk in to those offices? Wow, that's a great question. I had a whole talk I give. I don't give it very often, but it's called The Lies We Tell Ourselves. And after I say, here's a lie, it's for women mostly. I think women tell ourselves more lies than men do. Men have an otherworldly sense of confidence in themselves. (laughs) Some maybe shouldn't have as much confidence in themselves (laughs) as they do. But I think that these voices that, you know, I'm not capable, I'm not qualified, ring in our minds all the time as females. And so I, I, every day as part of my, you know, cleansing process at the end of the day, I take a personal inventory of how I treated others and how I treated myself. There were times when I was young, I mean, we're talking about, I'm an old lady now. So there were times when I would sit in my room and cry and just hug myself 
and tell myself I would be okay. There's times I would come home and cry in the carpet because I couldn't see my kids for two days and just weep at the loss of feeling like I'm failing as a mom, like I'm a vacant mother. And then I had to just tell myself everything will be okay. And, you know, I also took comfort in the words from my children that, you know, there was this one big projects we do and it'd be a couple evenings where I just missed my children. I was just working so much. And this one time, like I said, I came home and just, I, I would cry into the carpet to muffle it so my ch- it wouldn't wake up my kids, you know. Wah! And I remember waking up the next day and I was having breakfast with my daughter, having a conversation. I'm like, oh, I had another bad, I had a bad night, Rachel. Last night I came home and just wept and cried and I just feel like a bad mom and I'm trying to get over it. And, you know, I, do you, what do you think? You know, how do you think I'm doing? And, oh, mom. I can learn to cook from the Food Network, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from you, I've learned how to communicate and that's something that I'll need and be able to use the rest of my life. And so I took comfort that my daughter was strong enough to go 48 hours without mommy. You know, she didn't want me to be one of those helicopter moms who were there driving every single project at the elementary school either. But, um, yeah, she. Yeah, so I. I also had to take comfort in the people that God had put around me to to say I'm okay and believe it. Like sometimes we gloss over that and amplify the negative and don't amplify the positive things said about us. And so there's moments of hope I clinged to and let those words kind of penetrate my heart instead of the bad ones. Well, so it sounds like you just had this incredible team being your family, right? Your husband. And then your kids where you can have that kind of open communication where you're seeing the lack and you find out from your child that, no, there's no lack there. Right? Yeah. They they can probably identify some lack for sure. But we tried. You know, we, we wanted an environment for our children, same as I made for the company, where they would be able to, at a very early age, find their destiny, find what they were born to do. And they both did by the time they were both around 12 my daughter knew that she knew she wanted to be a science teacher. My son knew that he wanted to be a classical musician. Neither of those are necessarily wealth-bearing positions, and that's not important to them. It's not important to me. Like a lot of people will be like, don't be a school teacher. You're too bright or classical musician, you know. <laughs> but we, we fostered that and supported that and, and did what they wanted to do, and I feel like they are both going to be happy in life. And that's all that matters. So we wanted them to find what brings them pleasure and taught them the same thing we lived by is what brings you peace and what brings you pleasure and follow those things. Well, because for you, I mean, when you talked about how what success was going to be for you, I mean, it was never I'm going to make X amount of money or I'm going to be a CEO yeah. or I'm going to work with, you know, Al Gore, right? It was... Right. I mean, you went through it. It was at first running a business in a home that was not like what you grew up with, right? Right. Then it was... I think, too, people would have look at success like, oh, well, you, you make a lot of money. Mark and I, in our marriage and in my relationship with my children, we are no more happy now than we were then, mm-hmm. um, pre-successful business. So there are people think, oh, I'll be happy if I have success and that's not true. Like we are the same amount of happy. Now we have conveniences and we own a timeshare in Maui. That's amazing. <laughs> but that does not make us a stronger family unit. Mm-hmm. That does not make us healthier relationally. None of that does. Um, so I, I feel like to whom 
much is given, much is required. So I do need to give back and I do need to make sure that, um, that I manage what's been given to me well. Um, and that must be why you're on my show at this hour right now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so when you were young, because you did grow up economically starved, as you say, when you were young, did you think that having more money or having this kind of money would bring back more happiness? Wow, you got, you're really doing a good job. I feel like um, I had some traumatic instances as a kid around money. I remember, um, I remember my fifth birthday, and my mom, you know, was involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and other stuff, and she divided a family. I didn't, I didn't know them at all. Um, so it was a small birthday party with a family of strangers, and they had no money, and they had bought or brought me an empty, I don't know if you remember, or probably not old enough, but Avon, the kind of traveling mm-hmm. salesperson, used to have these lotions and or perfumes in the shape of dolls or in the shape of Barbies, not Barbies brand, but little little figurine-ish things with fragrances and or lotions in it. And, and they'd given me that as a gift. And it was, you know, most of the lotion was gone, but you could still tell there was lotion in it. And I, I was like, what? I I can't believe you gave me a used thing or something. You know, I made some snarky thing. Boy, I remember my mom picked me up, hauled me in the house, and just whipped me on my fifth birthday. And so, and so I so I have these weird um, instances where I felt like I made a mistake about the gap between poverty, having nothing, and having everything. Um, and so I I had a Christmas one time where where we there was just no money and we, I got like a little bean bag that was in the shape of a bear and that was it. And I just remember being disappointed and then feeling really guilty, really guilty that I was disappointed. And so I secretly went to my room and clutched the little bear and wept. And I thought, I don't ever want my kids to have to go through this. I don't want them... I just wanted them to get something great one day a year, you know, and, and I don't know. So I, I do think, I don't want to deny the fact that I, I, you know, would have loved to have had a vacation as a kid or not had to rake lawns to buy my school clothes and stuff like that. But that's what it was, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I would say, yeah, I, I was affected by that maybe. I mean, those are two two small stories of how I may have been impacted by, you know, being the recipient of, of, um, or not being the recipient of, of things. Money was never really important to, to my family. Part of my mom's, um, illness is that she spent, does spend more than she has. And so we, we, my dad probably did make enough for us to live on, but we you never would have known that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because um, we still ate beans and rice. Uh, you know, we had large vats of beans and rice in the basement, and we would go to the local university farm there and pick up the uh, runts, the deformed uh, piglets, and raise them in our kitchen and slaughter them. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be eating dinner like, are we eating fat pet tonight? Like, who, who are we eating of our pets, <laughs> you know? But... um so anyway, it, it, I, yeah, so I was affected, I would say, um, and it did become a driver for me because I, I knew what it was like to wonder if we were going to be okay all the time. 
But did you ever get to a point where, you know, and they'll say that what the studies will say, like in California, once once a family makes about 75,000, you live in Silicon Valley, so that's a different world. But, you know, in parts of California, if you make 75,000 a year, the happiness factor doesn't really increase. But there's a certain point where you can, you know, take care of the basic needs. But and and often mm-hmm. like when I talk with people like, say, for instance, New York Times bestselling authors, right? They think, okay, once I get this, then I'm going to be happy. And they realize that their life really isn't different, except maybe, you know, there's other things that success brings, but it, their happiness or their family's happiness doesn't necessarily have to change because of outside achievements. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I agree. Like I think about, I think that people who are given much responsibility with their wealth are supposed to be generous. You know, um, I actually think it's a test. And if you're generous, you will be happy. Like, we just built a new home and people would be like, well, it's a beautiful home. We built a new home so we could have a two-bedroom, two-bath in-law unit so my mother and father-in-law could live out their days attached to our home. Mm-hmm. You know, when all the hallways are the width of a wheelchair. And, you know, we, we made decisions to accommodate someone else, you know, and, and what they need. Or I just went on a trip to Paris and my kids, you know, our calendars didn't line up. I get a speaking gig and it's always, uh, two tickets, business class, full ride to Paris. I'm like, well, if you guys can't go, who do I take my daughter's science teacher? Well, cause she taught in Chico. She goes, well, there's this student who didn't get into an exchange program in all her life. All she's ever wanted to do to go to Paris. That's all she ever wanted to do. She has Pinterest boards about Paris and she couldn't get into the program. They were going to send her to Bolivia. She was heartbroken. Will you take her? Sure. So I took a 16-year-old stranger to Paris for a week and had a ball. And you know, here I am, like, you know, CEO in the Silicon Valley, and I'm tooting around Paris with a kid. Her very first flight ever, ever that she's had in her life was a trip to Paris. And we had such a blast. So it's like, what, you know, what are we supposed to do with our lives? I think we're supposed to delight others when you get, and it makes me happy. You know, I, I, we got four weeks of a timeshare in Maui so we could take other people with us that could never afford to go. And it's so fun to take someone and see their delight and their happiness just because of a gesture that you do with your money. You know, I don't have gobs of jewelry and I don't wear the fine clothes. My husband made me finally go out and get nice clothes because he's like, Nancy, you really, really should play the part. And he he went out and got me a cute car and I would never, I don't care about that stuff. I'd rather delight somebody with generosity than, um, than keep it for myself, you know. And we try to pay as competitively as we can here at the at the shop and as, be as generous to our employees as we can to make a way for them, you know? Wow. Well, my mouth is still like hanging open about the girl in Chico. What an incredible experience. It was so fun. Now we text each other all the time. It's just really cute. And uh, she became a friend, which is so interesting. And now I, I will have concern and care and feel a sense of responsibility to, you know, make sure she gets to grow up in a way that's very special to her. So anyway... Well, and so in your TEDx talk, I mean, you did talk about how we can change the world, right? And we all have the power within us to change the world. And I think that's an example. Maybe the listeners here won't get to, you know, business class tickets to Paris, but, you know, <laughs> there are ways and by 
you know, talking to somebody or helping somebody, we can change it in our own ways with what the resources that we have available to us. Exactly. I mean, when, when Mark and I had nothing, like we used to do our budget when you're making, I started making about $600 a month and we always set aside, we always have, and maybe this is it, since we were 16, since we had nothing, my husband sponsored a child through Compassion International. He would work a job so he could send $21 in an envelope to help a small child in Haiti that had nothing. And so we've always set aside 10% of our income, even though we couldn't make ends meet. And there was no way we should have been able to make our budget because if you did it, if you did the math, we were $14 below our budget every month. No matter what, we gave away that 10%. And somehow every single month we made ends meet. Like one time, literally, someone put a $300 cashier's check in our mailbox. We never talked about being too tight or not having enough. We never talked about that. But we always made sure we gave. And somehow, literally, these little miraculous, you know, gifts showed up and we could always make ends meet. But we always made sure we gave to those less fortunate. So, Nancy, as you've been talking and sharing your story, I think about Carol Dweck, who's over by you at Stanford, and she's been a guest on the show. And um, she talks about growth mindsets and fixed mindset. And growth mindsets are people who are willing to learn and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and keep learning. And mm-hmm. that just sounds... It, that sounds like who you are. And that sounds like if we're looking at, you know, why did you have this great success, right? What was one of the nuggets? There's the grit, there's the being of service, right? And then there's this mindset of being constantly willing to learn and make mistakes. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the byproducts as I read and go through my own healing around my mom, I, I realized that, um, someone with her conditions, they breed two kinds of daughters. And one is kind of this overachieving one and, and one of them isn't, and one of them can't, and sometimes can't even function. And I feel like I, I definitely um, have this drive to be productive. I have this need to produce and or grow every day. Like for me, if I'm on vacation, but I produce something, it's been a good day. I got to relax a lot and still produce something. (laughs) So I'll always write something or read a self-help something every day. And um, so, yeah, I would say that's definitely, I'm definitely a growth mindset. I actually don't love the steady state. I don't, I don't love steadiness. (laughs) You know, I actually have been accused of creating chaos just to keep my world a little more interesting, but um, I, I like the, um, the fierceness of growth and the fierceness of moving forward. <laughs> I laugh because recently I was telling a friend, I'm like, oh, there's just been too much ease and flow in my life. You know, I, I just can't handle this. They're like, oh, that makes sense. That's why you live your life the way you do. <laughs> well, what's funny is and in the steady state is that's where stagnation is and that's where decay starts. So if, if by steady state, I mean like status quo, oh, I'm just going to check out on life and coast. That's what I mean by steady state. And it's like, that's never good. Uh, anything that sits still goes into a state of decay and definitely don't want that to happen in my heart or, or my mind or my life, you know? Well, one of the things I like to be efficient and productive and I like to set up systems. And so when I used to teach at a community college, 
and I was one of the first online teachers in California, I was like, oh, I'm going to teach this online health and I'm going to get it set up so that it's just, it's all set up and it's smooth and running and, you know, worked on it for a few years and I got it. So it was humming. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, now I'm bored. Now I want to go do something else. Even though the idea was to have it set up so I could be in this kind of promised land with this course, but I became bored because I wanted to add more things, you know, because I just sitting there yeah. and just letting it just grow on its own. Well, that wasn't very much fun for me. Yeah, that's so. what I do when I travel. I have kind of my shtick and I change it up just because I get bored. You know, <laughs> I'm going to try saying it this way. Ah, well, you see how they act if I say that or whatever. I just am like, oh, I'm so tired of my own material. I have to change it up. <laughs> Funny. So, so I'd like to um, ask you a question um, for the listeners. Or you can finish the sentence, actually. Never give up on your dream because? Never give up on your dream because everyone is called to leave the world better than we found it. I think um, each is of, I don't know, you know, we all have a unique thumbprint. We have a, we all have a unique eyeball. Like when you look at how unique we all are. And I just think everyone's put on the earth to make it more unique and more beautiful and to leave a mark that's unlike one that anyone else on the whole planet can leave. And I think that that's just what I think. So maybe that drives me. I don't know, but just to make a difference in some way and in your unique way, not trying to be someone else, but, but the way you were made to make a mark, you know? Well, that it just sounds like it, 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 it resonates. It comes from this, like your heart, right? It comes from your heart. And that's why you've been able to build this incredibly long, sustainable career. Um, because it's coming from your heart, it's not rooted in fear. And, but it's rooted in this heart of how can I make things better? How can I contribute? How can I give back? And that sounds like why, how you're able to continue the sustainable motivation that you have. Um, yeah, I, I love that. So before we go, two takeaways for the listeners who want to change the world. How about um, kind of like, um, I'm actually, this is a concept I'm actually using in my next book. It's like rise above the fog. I think that um, people, if you use fog as an acronym, I think people choose fear over guts, F-O-J, like I think it would be to just be more gutsy. And sometimes it's like the fog of war. Everything's blurry. Everything's smoky. Everything's smoggy. It's ambiguous. I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know why I'm doing this. It's just keep going with your gut and keep being gutsy and make some gutsy moves. And um, and, the, and then the fog will clear um, and you'll be at the right place, I think. Um, I think um, to ta- another takeaway would be um, to listen to your heart, I think. I feel like I'm a heartfelt communicator. Like, that just comes out of my mouth easy when it's about my heart. But what I've had to actually turn into my body of work is how to listen to other people's hearts, how to really look at them and see what's inside of them and listen to them deeply because of my own trauma, because of my own thing. You know, I, I'm heartfelt. But I don't know how to feel other people's hearts. Not the discipline I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to be is more other, listen to others more genuinely. And I think that when you do, you see the world in a different way and then maybe it'll drive you to change a different problem than you thought you were born to, 
to change. And so I think those would be my bits of advice. Nancy, thank you so much for being a guest today. It was it was I a pleasure. I had such a fun time. Nobody's inter- interviewed just me about me, so I really enjoyed this. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Wow. So that was Nancy Duarte from Duarte Incorporated, and I'll have links to her books as well as her website. And she does have um, some really cool things that she works on. So one of the reasons that I wanted her to be on the show is that she's been spiraling in my world quite a bit. She's good friends with a friend of mine, Pam Slim, um, who's been a frequent guest on the show. And, and I've heard about Nancy Duarte and I've heard about, you know, how she really studies the art of the story. But when you know a little bit about her in her backstory, that's what really ignited me. I mean, that was why I originally invited Brene Brown to my show many years ago. It wasn't because I thought, oh, she's going to be on Oprah. And there was part of that vulnerability piece. But the other part that really intrigued me was, you know, she went a different route. She didn't get her college degree until she was about 30 years old, right? And that was the other side with Nancy that intrigued me. In my area, Chico's not that far. It's a rural community about three hours north of me, about five hours from the Silicon Valley. And to see somebody who grew up there without a college degree and build what she had, I was ignited. I wanted to know and share with you, like, if this is possible for Nancy, what is possible for you? So often we have these struggles and we have these rules that we play with thinking that that is what's going to um, determine our outcome. But she didn't let it. She embraced the struggle, right? She decided she had a choice to make. She could either choose to let those roadblocks be roadblocks and limit her life, or she could choose to let that struggle uh, transform her. And so that comes down to really embracing the struggle and learning and growing and you know, having that fear and getting back up and going for it anyways. I mean, like I talked about in the interview with her is that she had a team, right? She has that love from her husband. She had that love and support from her kids and whoever else was in her inner circle that maybe on those tough days gave her the strength. Plus the drive of, I I want a better life than what I had. I want a better life for my children. I mean, that was deep rooted inside of her. I mean, she talked about being a five-year-old at Christmas, right? So those were things that really drove her. And not looking at it from a place of lack, but looking at it, okay, what can I, what can I do? What can I escape that feels better? How can I have a better life? You know, and, and I think that this is so important because sometimes we'll see, you know, we'll see the the struggle and then we see Nancy Duarte over here hanging out with Al Gore or doing work with him, right? But what were the, what were the steps in between? And that was something that she so brilliantly shared with us today was there were many steps. And the big dream when she was 18 years old was to be a cashier at Long's Drugs. I mean, that drugstore doesn't even exist anymore. It's been bought out by CVS locally. But that was her big dream. And for her to have that chutzpah to go in and say, and lay on that desk of that manager and say, I'll be the best employee that you ever had, right? To have that inner confidence or that, that her back up against the wall. What if, and if you have fear, one of the things I was talking with my clients about this week is that, you know, when you have fear, we hear about have fear and do it anyways. If you have that fear, what can you do to get you more grounded in your well-being so that you can come from that place and be, you know, say, move forward? She probably realized, hey, I can do a good job. I can work hard, 
right? That may have been the evidence that she had is that I know I can work hard and I know I need to support my family, right? And so this is what I need to do. And and that was probably one of the things that drove her as she walked in, you know, to those CEO meetings in Silicon Valley at the age of 29. And one of the other things that she talked about was this learning, you know, we talked about the growth mindset and learning, you know, in unconventional ways that it doesn't have to be in that college degree per se, or that high school diploma, you know, she didn't, didn't have the resources for that. And so she went a different way, right? But that didn't stop her. And she didn't say, oh, well, I can't get a college degree, so I can't learn. She continuously wanted to learn. And yeah, she took some risk. Right when you sh- you're making a thousand dollars a month and you're or over a thousand dollars a month and you're dropping down below a thousand, there's going to be risks. But she thought, you know what, that can be better for my family. I can make a better life, and that pursuit for a better life was something that she always had. You know, so as she went through her stages, so small steps. I always say that I love the saying of it can be small steps, but small hinges can move big doors. It doesn't have to be this big giant dream. Right. Cause maybe that, that dream of wanting to be a cashier was probably really real for her. If somebody had said, Hey, Nancy, you're going to be a CEO and you're going to be, you know, traveling around the world and going to Paris and all kinds of stuff. You're going to be in such demand and you're going to be writing these best selling books. Who knows if that would have, she would have been able to really resonate with that, but she could resonate with, I want to be a cashier. And how can you go and be a cashier and do your, do a great job? And, and continuously do that and not ask for permission, but say, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how hard I'm going to work. And this is what I'm going to go learn. There's so much information that's out there. Whether you're listening to the show, I mean, this podcast has been one of the best educational opportunities that I've ever had. And I, I've gone through graduate school. So, you know, there's so much to learn and there's the internet and there are books and there's people out there. There's no reason that we can't learn. And we, she also talked about, you know, the grit and having that grit from her community. I mean, my husband had an Olympian from Chico. And so he's, he really believes that the Chico people have grit. You know, they, they have that tenacity to work hard and that, you know what, I'm going to go do it. So what this other person's a world record holder on any given day, the stars can align. Literally one of the swimmers had said that to him and she did make the Olympic team in 2004. Um, so having that grit and having that ability to work hard and getting knocked down. It wasn't an easy path for Nancy and it's not going to be an easy path for you. One of the things I talk about in the outro is, you know, that people fall down and they get back up and they fall down and they get back up. We didn't talk so much about that with Nancy. I mean, she really kind of highlighted the different transitions, but she didn't have this, you know, amazing, um, foundation to come from that most of us would have thought of, right? Or that most of us try to provide for our kids. You know, she was trying to escape and build something better for herself and for her family. She knew what she didn't want. And she knew what by by knowing what she didn't want, she could look at, okay, I want to create something better than this, right? And in the beginning, it was just a better life for her family. It was to, you know, she talked about that and that was the space that she's created for Duarte Incorporated is committed to creating a different kind of space where it's safe and expressive, where people can do their best work and having those values for both her family and home. You know, I would imagine that's what helps her thrive in her life. Um, Another thing that was so important that I thought about when she was speaking was the fact that she hikes right? We all have, we have these, we can have these excuses and say, oh, well, I'm too busy or I have all of this. I don't have time to take care of myself. 
She is a busy person and she's able to take three to six hours a weekend out of her life to go hike because that is her tool. She knows herself that that is part of her process to figure out problems. It helps her. So for you, I invite you to think about what are the things that help you, whether it's alleviate stress to get back into your best self, right? What are the things that you need for me, for my brain to think better? Bikram has been my thing for the last several years, right? And it's going to fluctuate. Maybe it'll be something else at another point. But, you know, get understanding and giving yourself that permission that, yes, it's important for you to go take care of yourself. Because as Nancy has shown in her life, that's where she can get out of her head, get connected to her heart. And when she's connected to her heart, that's when these great ideas came for her business. That's when, you know, things really, she was more connected and was able to move forward. And I, I totally get that. You know, one of the reasons I would go do Bikram is that it cleared my head. It All of a sudden, all this creativity came. I used to think, oh, I have to sit behind the desk and just pound away and it should just come. And it's about how many hours can I sit in front of the desk and in front of a blank sheet of paper. That's sometimes not the best way to use my creativity. So I invite you guys to think about, you know, this, this show and what nuggets you can take away and to remind you when maybe that voice of I'm a fraud comes or when you have stories of limitations, right? What is something in the show today that can help you, inspire you to move forward? Maybe you come back and re-listen to it again another day when you're having a hard day, you're feeling like a fraud or you're feeling like you're a prisoner to your own struggles, right? And come back, I invite you, come back and listen to the show again because sometimes that's the support. Like who is on your team? What are the inspirations, whether it's reading and learning? You know, she said she read tons of stuff, even though she didn't have the money. She subscribed to the Harvard, Harvard Business Review and the Wall Street Journal. Those aren't cheap publications, right? Maybe those aren't the tools that you need, but what are the tools that support you to create the life that you want so you can change the world? And remember, when you're changing the world, it doesn't mean you don't have to sit there with a fixed mindset and say, oh, well, I don't have two tickets to Paris, or so I can't help somebody. You, what are ways that you can help somebody with the resources you currently have? And maybe that resource you have is time. And that's a huge resource because we all only have so much time. So we can all make a difference. We can change the world. So go out and change your world. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. 
I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so. Sold-